Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you have a pension, you're exposed to the ups and downs of stock markets. You may also know that some of your nest egg is likely to be invested in private markets. But you might be surprised just how much and how quickly that portion is growing. Since the financial crisis, long-term institutional investors have piled into private equity, venture capital, property and infrastructure in their quest for yield. It is a giant bet. Will it pay off? You're listening to Money Talks from The Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy and the world of business. I'm Alice Fulwood, The Economist's Wall Street correspondent. And on today's show, the past decade has been golden for private financial markets with low interest rates and non-existent regulation. Once a niche pursuit, they are supersizing and adopting a whole raft of new tools to profit from new types of assets and attract new investors. But as scrutiny grows and alternative assets enter the mainstream, can the private markets party continue? Investor anxiety notched up a level this week as the threat of war in Ukraine looms. On Tuesday, the S&P 500 shed 1% after Russia deployed soldiers to the Donbass region of Ukraine. The index is now down by 10% from its recent peak. America, Britain, the EU, Australia and Japan have all announced sanctions, and President Biden warned that an economic war will have grave consequences. The escalation of the conflict adds another layer of uncertainty for markets already assailed by clogged supply chains, inflation, rising interest rates and the simmering pandemic. Public stocks are the first assets to drop in a crisis and tend to grab all the headlines. But investors hold increasing proportions of their wealth in private markets. By most measures, private markets are three times the size they were 10 years ago. These assets are unlisted, the markets are opaque but the payoffs can be enormous. 2021 was just a huge year for private markets, really the year of the deal. Our senior editor, Matthew Valencia, has spent the past couple of months talking to everyone there is to know in the world of private markets for a special report published in this week's Economist. There were about $1.2 trillion in uh, disclosed leverage buyouts. Uh, now, leverage buyouts are sort of core part of the private markets, it's um, you know private equity firms, private equity funds, buying companies, putting a huge amount of debt in many cases on those companies, and then eventually selling them on after several years, um, quite often after having spruced them up in some way or other. So LBOs, as they're known, are a sort of core part of the market. And that number last year, that $1.2 trillion, was well above the previous record, which was back in 2006, and that was about 800 billion. So, you know, you're looking at about 50% more than the previous record. 
the amount of dry powder, which is the capital that the industry has, which hasn't yet been deployed, reached record levels, was at a record by quite some way. The size of funds, you saw 20, 30 billion dollar funds even being launched or being discussed. And to be honest, there have been some signs in the first month or two of this year that some of the heat is coming out of the market, but it still remains very busy. Okay, so there was a huge amount of capital raised last year, loads of deals. Who are all the big companies that are are pulling these off? Well, the biggest of them is Blackstone. Uh, It's the giant of the industry. And it recently announced that its assets had jumped to almost $900 billion. So that's the £500 gorilla of the industry. But there are other big firms as well. There's um, KKR, which many listeners will know from the book Barbarians at the Gate, which is about KKR's takeover of RJR Nabisco back in 1988. That was a $25 billion takeover. Pretty outrageous for the time and still one of the biggest players. Um, Carlyle, Apollo, which specialises more in debt than equity, and a host of others. Uh, And they're all publicly listed now. And then you have some, some big players uh, which are still private, like um, Bain Capital, uh, like CVC, which is, which is based in Europe. And a lot of those firms were founded in the 70s and 80s, right? So this is an interesting moment because a lot of those original founders and bosses are now beginning to move out of the industry. Yes, that's right. I mean, this is a, a sort of big moment for generational change. If you look at KKR, two of the co-founders... George Roberts and Henry Kravis uh, announced uh, a few months ago that they were stepping down and there are two new co-heads who've taken over the firm already. Blackstone, Steve Schwartzman, one of the two co-founders, is still the CEO, but the day-to-day running of that firm is mostly with Jonathan Gray, who's much, much younger and um, is expected by almost everybody to take over as CEO sometime fairly soon. At Apollo, there was an unplanned shakeup at the top after one of the co-founders, Leon Black, stepped aside after an inquiry into his links to Jeffrey Epstein. And at Carlisle, there was a power struggle at the top a couple of years ago, and one of the co-CEOs left as a result. So there's a whole load of new leaders at the top of the industry who are relatively untried and untested. It's certainly a hugely competitive time to get a job in private equity, even if you aren't eyeing up the top job. I was struck by one stat in your report that Blackstone had 29,000 applicants for 100 analyst jobs last year. When I was graduating, everyone was fighting tooth and nail to get into investment banking. But today it feels like there's way more buzz around private equity. Yeah, well, things have changed a little bit since you were graduating, partly because they make more money than the investment banks these days. The private equity firms are at least when it comes to uh, remuneration, the new kings of Wall Street. It's certainly a far cry from from the early days of private equity. And one of the 80 or so people I spoke to for the special report was John Connerton at Bain Capital. He's the uh, the head of private equity and one of the the top partners at, at Bain. And he joined the company in 1989. And when he was thinking of joining the company, he was warned off by some of his mentors who told him it wouldn't last. It's a long time ago, but, you know, I guess 33 years or so ago, you know, I had this idea that this industry of private equity, uh, which it wasn't even called private equity, I think it was called the LBO industry, was an interesting one. You know, a lot of people were trying to control companies, uh, trying to make a return by having privatized companies, and it was attractive. But it was also a time uh, where there was a huge cycle. There was the savings and loan crisis. Uh, There was the the demise of, of Drexel. Uh, and many of my mentors believed it was going to be the end of that industry. So it was a bit uh, daunting. But, you know, what I was intrigued by was, was our model. 
But I think for us, our context was different. Uh, we, you know, we were consultants and operators. That was my background. So from our standpoint, this idea of yeah, controlling large assets, helping you know, teams come up with new strategies and then operate them better. I've been doing it to make impact and control these companies, large companies, was pretty, pretty fascinating. A better way to put your money where your mouth is than uh, through, through advice. It is interesting hearing John Connaughton there saying when he started in private equity, it was explicitly called the LBO business. That name wouldn't really fit the bill these days, would it? Talk us through how that model is changing. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's really not just about leveraged buyouts anymore. So if you look at a company like KKR, they were very emblematic of the early iterations of private equity, the, the leveraged buyout houses. And I spoke with Elisa Wood, who's a partner at the firm and leads its global private markets and real assets uh, practice. And I asked her how much what the company does has changed compared to how it was back then. When I started at KKR almost 20 years ago now, you walked in and you only had one tool in your toolkit. You only had one offer, which was, we like your company, can we buy it? Right? And we had a very narrow definition of what made a good investment. We only had one pool of capital and that was private equity. So what happened was we started looking at all of the investments over time that we didn't do. We said no to. Right. We said no to them for the principal purpose that the pool of capital we had from our investors did not fit the risk reward for those other asset classes. So let's just go raise the right pool of capital to meet the risk return profile of those investments. Maybe it's not buying 100% of a business, or maybe that business has long dated contracted cash flows and those returns look different. Maybe those investments are actually not owning an operating company and it's owning a building or or assets like that. Um, maybe it's actually going in and saying, you know what, we don't necessarily have, you know, we don't think the equity is priced the right way, but we actually think this is a great business and we want to be somewhere in the capital structure on that. So it allows us to be a more holistic investor up and down the capital structure, across asset classes and around the world. We've seen really strong growth in private debt. Uh, that's now a market worth something like $1 trillion, perhaps even more than that. That got a boost from the global financial crisis because all these rules came in after the crisis for for banks, which constrained the ways in which they could use their balance sheets to, to make bets and also forced them to hold more capital. And, and so banks retrenched and that created a void into which private debt funds were quite happy to, to step. And then on top of that, we're also seeing increasing investment in real assets, property, infrastructure, and so on. And, you know, within private equity, you have, at the young end, you have venture capital. For more mature companies, you have buyouts. And then in between those two, you have what's called growth equity, which is for companies which are sort of in their teens, if you like. There's been a real boom in growth equity over the past five to 10 years. There's so much more to what's going on in the private markets these days. Private equity also used to be perceived as you know that kind of corporate raider type investor, but now they seem to have lots of different kinds of missions. What impact is this different approach having on the portfolio companies that PE invests in? Well, it's having a number of impacts. I mean, first of all, because private equity has got more sophisticated and you know it has more people that can help companies to to change and to grow, it means that they're 
happy staying private for longer, they feel that they can get the financing and the advice they need over a longer period than perhaps they did 5, 10, 15 years ago. So if you look at the length of time from the foundation of a company to going public in the United States, it's gone from around seven years to 11. And I think that's partly because of the growing sophistication of private markets and the different approach that private equity is taking. Does that also mean that private equity funds are investing over a longer time horizon as well? It does. the, The traditional length of a private equity fund is 10 years, maybe a bit less. Increasingly, they're looking at longer duration funds. Um, There's more talk of 15, 20-year funds, a bit less emphasis on the sort of buy, tart up and sell. We're also seeing the introduction of evergreen vehicles and more talk of um, so-called perpetual capital, permanent capital. And John Gray at Blackstone, the heir apparent and chief operating officer, has spoken recently about moving from a channel of water into open ocean, that this move to longer-term capital sort of hugely expands the opportunities available to them. So we've seen sort of huge growth in the size of funds, changes in strategy about sort of what kind of firms they buy, how long they hold them, the types of assets private equity is interested in buying. Are we also seeing changes in who invests in private equity funds as well? Yes, we are. I mean, one of the things we're seeing is um, a lot more interest coming from the very highest end of retail, family offices, which look after money for multimillionaires and billionaires. And then you have the regular retail crowd, and they really want to get in. At the moment, it's not so easy. You know, there are regulatory barriers, but they're super keen. And the private equity firms themselves are very keen to get this money. You know, it'd be a huge new pool of capital. That's something for the future. I mean, if you look at the market today, the vast majority of the investors are still institutional investors, not retail. The first big institutional investors to believe in the private market's magic formula were the endowments of some of the biggest and most prestigious American universities. The approach was pioneered and perfected by one man, David Swenson of Yale, probably the world's most lionised private markets investor. He died last year at just 67, but over his 36 years at the head of Yale's investment office, as well as through his best-selling books and regular open lectures to students, he changed how many investors think about seeking alpha for good. Let's go back to 1985 when I first arrived at Yale. It was April 1st, 1985, for those of you who care about April Fool's Day. I came from uh, a six-year stint on Wall Street, and I had no significant portfolio management experience. What do I do? David Swenson was exceptional as an investor and a human being. I am Anne Glover. I'm co-founder and CEO of Amadeus Capital, a UK technology venture capitalist. I have also the privilege of sitting on the Yale Investment Committee. Anne Glover joined the Yale Endowment Board three years ago, but she and David Swenson go back a long way. I was lucky enough to be a Mellon Fellow from Clare College, Cambridge, which offers a fellowship to spend two years at Yale. And David was also a graduate fellow, and he was just starting his PhD at the time under Tobin. So we met as graduate fellows in 
1976. It was that PhD supervisor, James Tobin, a Nobel Prize-winning economist, who persuaded Swenson to give up a lucrative career on Wall Street to come back to his alma mater. I realised that my heart wasn't in Wall Street, my heart was in the, the world of education, and at Yale in particular, so I came up here amazed that I was responsible as chief investment officer for this portfolio that was less than a billion, but close to a billion. The reason that I think his um, heart wasn't in Wall Street is that he was really interested in performance and making money, but doing it for a purpose. And, you know, profit with purpose is a much later term than he ever used. But but the mission of Yale and what its impact on society was, was really central. So he was a very passionate person. He was an enthusiast for everything he did. So he was a, an active sportsman. He was an active wine buff. He was an active, um, he was a real supporter of the Green Bay Packers. Um, and so he was really competitive. That comes through in the sportsmanship as well as in the performance of the endowment. The secret to that performance, the much-copied, never-equaled Yale model, was in a way a return to fundamentals. There are basically three things that you can do to affect your returns. First of all, you can decide what assets you're going to have in the portfolio and in which proportions you'll hold those assets. So that's the asset allocation decision. The second thing that you can do is make a market timing decision. Endowments have a longer time horizon than any investor that I know. Because endowments can take a longer-term view, they can sacrifice the ease of trading in public markets for the better returns promised in private equity. They can earn what's called an illiquidity premium, a reward for giving up the ability to sell out easily. The final tool that we have available to us as investors is security selection. If there is any magic in the recipe... This is where it is, in the courage to be a contrarian, and stay one. If you decide that you want to try and beat the market, then that bet, or that series of bets, will define your returns attributable to security selection. It was some very primary thinking, uh, which he actually did with a guy called Dean Takahashi. And the two of them together basically looked at the the variance of performance in various markets. And they looked at private markets. And the unusual thing about private markets is that the difference between the top quartile and the bottom quartile performance of a group of managers investing at the same time in the same vintage over the same time period, the delta is much, much larger than in public markets. And that implies an information advantage or at least a skill advantage. And so they felt that they could take advantage of that if they did a better job at manager selection. It's hard to find mispriced or inefficiently priced stocks in the public markets because news about listed companies travels fast and is quickly priced in. But investors in private markets who do their homework are more likely to be rewarded. I mean, think about venture capital, right? I mean, how is it that you could index venture capital? You can't. It's a bunch of private partnerships and a bunch of idiosyncratic enterprises. And even if you wanted to, you couldn't match the market. So you're forced to go out and forge your own path 
and live and die by the decisions that you make. Those decisions have paid off, and everyone wants in on the success. Yale now has 45% of its allocation in VC and buyouts alone, and hot on its heels are the rest of America's university endowments, the biggest of which have almost 40% in buyouts, VC, and real assets. Gosh, I mean, he's trained and populated um, most of the senior managers in the endowment world in the US, not to mention some over here. The CIOs of Stanford, MIT, Princeton, Smith, and Matt Mendelssohn's taken over at Yale. I think that that is an unusually generous view of you know, people development, because he knew that they would go on to become, you know, in effect, direct competitors. But for him, it was much more about making the whole endowment world successful. We had the best record of any institutional investor in the United States. And I think if we were back in this room five years or, or 10 years from now, uh, we'll see that the, the, the portfolio will continue to produce the same kind of uh, strong long-run results as it has for the past 10 and 20 years. A little over 10 years from when David Swenson made that bet to a packed lecture hall of eager students, the Yale Endowment has had yet another phenomenal year. When David took over as CIO of the Yale Endowment, it was just under a billion dollars. And today, some 36 years later, it is over $42 billion. Yale's annualised returns average 13.7%, comfortably beating what public market investors can expect. But in the years to come, and without Swenson at the helm, the Yale model will be tested as never before. Matthew, it was striking to hear the king of the endowment model describe it himself, but it's not just the endowment world that has copied this approach. Could you give us a sense of just how wide a range of investors have embraced this strategy? Well, a lot of investors have. It's been copied by sovereign wealth funds, insurers, pension funds. Even now, having you know raised their allocations considerably over, over recent years, they're looking in some cases to raise them further. We saw CalPERS, which is a very large US public pension fund based in California. It signaled plans last year to increase its allocation to private equity and to start investing in private debt. It's looking to take those from around 8 to 18% of its portfolio. And it's also taking on some leverage as well, which raised some eyebrows. And CalPERS is a good example of a pension fund that has put a lot of hope into to private markets. And some might sort of feel a slight sense of desperation there as well, because you know, a lot of these funds, CalPERS among them, have big funding deficits. And so they need high yielding assets to, you know, to help dig them out of a hole, essentially. But as these funds grow and more and more people pile in, isn't it just inevitable that the returns are going to start to come down? It reminds me of that Warren Buffett quote that you put in your special report. No one in the world can earn 20% on big money. Yes, well, Buffett's absolutely right. The bigger you get, the harder it gets to outperform. And that's even if you continue, as the industry has, to, to charge big fees. I mean, they're, they're still charging, you know, 2% management fees and um, 20% of the profit thereabouts. But despite doing that, there's this um, pressure we're seeing on, on overall returns. And something else that's going on, of course, is the market's becoming more crowded. There are 
something like 18,000 private funds in the United States. I mean, that's a lot more, probably 50% more than there were just a few years ago. And you're also seeing big investors from the public markets moving more into private markets. Firms like BlackRock, uh, Vanguard, Franklin Templeton, they already have a presence in private markets, but they want more. And part of the reason they want more is because their clients want more. You know, they're clamouring to get more access to private markets through these firms. But that clamouring is dependent on this idea that private markets will continue to outperform public ones. And that outperformance is edging down, but you're still paying these very high fees. Up to what point are those payoffs going to still be worth it? Well, that's the um, $10 trillion question, I guess, for this industry. I mean, it's, it's clear that private equity has outperformed comparable public stocks over a number of different periods. But that, that outperformance has narrowed over time. At his last investment committee meeting before he died, David Swenson was said to have been very bearish on valuations in private equity. And you know, if you look at prices, they're, they're very high relative to earnings. And you know, the industry argues, well, that's okay. That's because we've switched to more of a growth-oriented model. The companies that we're investing in are faster growing than they used to be. But there are some, some big questions over, over whether they're right there and also over whether the superior performance that we saw 5, 10, 20 years ago can continue. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. But first, a reminder that you can read and listen to our rolling analysis of the developments in Ukraine from our correspondents on the ground at economist.com. And if you only have bandwidth to read one thing on this today, have a look at our editor's assessment of Western sanctions. They weigh up how much power sanctions really have to stop a war. If you're not yet a subscriber, go to economist.com slash podcast offer for full access. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Matthew, despite the changes in how these big private markets, investment companies do business, it's been remarkably hard for them to get away from the kind of swashbuckling barbarian image of the 1980s. I guess the books and the films haven't helped. What do you think? Are these criticisms justified? There's a lot of criticism out there. And in some respects, it's grown. I mean, of course, they were branded locusts about a decade ago in Germany by politicians. But, you know, they've been called all sorts of other things as well, including pirates and sharks and so on. The criticisms range. They still get accused of asset stripping, being raiders who, who come in and basically bleed companies dry. And the industry would say, look, that's just an outdated caricature. But there are still some examples of that. There are certain practices that to a lot of outsiders don't look terribly good, such as dividend recaps, payments that, that partners at private equity funds make to themselves, essentially by having the portfolio company take on more debt, and then they use that debt to, to pay themselves a dividend. 
that's something that gets criticised a lot. Uh, and of course, they also get called out for being job killers, for cutting employment, and for, you know, more broadly, having a, a negative economic impact. Now, the industry, of course, is pushing back hard against this. I asked Elisa Wood at KKR whether the reputation problem that the industry has is deserved. I think first and foremost, not all private equity is the same, right? This is an asset class where top decile performers can literally make thousands of basis points of incremental performance than your median investor. That's pretty unique, right? I don't think there are many asset classes that, that do that, right? So painting the brush with your average private equity investment, sometimes I, I, I think we, we just have to level set that, you know, average is not what we're going for, right? The reality is that PE sponsors to run these investments truly only succeed when the portfolio companies they invest in over the long run, like we're not talking about quick wins here. We're talking about things in many, in, in multiples of many, many years. You know, that's how they succeed. We succeed when we grow our companies. We succeed when we create value on the bottom line for our businesses. So when you think about alignment of interest, when you think about having skin in the game, we like to say we eat our own cooking, right? I like how emphatic Elisa was there. And she does make a good point about this idea that private equity companies do well when their portfolio companies do. But the political pressure does seem to be building regardless. And there seems to be this new wave of regulation coming. How serious a problem is that for these firms? In some ways, too early to say quite how impactful it will be because it's unfolding as we speak. We've seen in some political quarters, there's a real animus towards towards the industry. And um, some US senators, including Elizabeth Warren, have tried several times to push a bill through called the anti-Wall Street looting bill. So you, you get a sense of their attitude there towards private equity. You know, under President Biden, the Securities Exchange Commission and the Federal Trade Commission, both of them have tightened the screw or are talking about doing so when it comes to private equity. The SEC is looking at policing conflicts of interest more closely and also at transparency of fees and performance. And the FTC is looking at merger policy. But if I were a top private equity executive at the moment, I I would feel that the challenges lie elsewhere. Where would you set your sights then if you had one of these new top jobs? For one thing, I think that, that tax might be a bigger concern, at least on a personal level, to some of these executives than regulation. They've made huge amounts from carried interest, which is the profit that they make on investments, their share of the profit. And that's taxed as a capital gain, which means it's taxed much more lightly than than if it were income. And, you know, there are politicians on both sides of the Atlantic who are pushing to close what they see as, as an unfair loophole. I mean, more broadly, I think, The market becoming more crowded has got to be a concern. It's going to be more difficult to stand out. And then, of course, you have the the macroeconomic environment. Uh, Inflation is going up. Interest rates are rising. You know, cheap debt has, has long been the lifeblood of private equity. So with rising interest rates... That's going to be a net negative. Of course, there can be a positive for certain strategies, uh, for instance, distressed debt. You know, if you see more corporate distress, some of those funds will, will do well. But, um, but overall, it's, it's got to be a concern. What kind of firms will have an advantage then in this new, more difficult environment? Well, I think it's probably going to be the very biggest and some of the smaller ones. John Connerton at Bain, you know, since the 1980s has seen uh, at least two of these cycles. He's relatively sanguine for his own firm, for Bain, but he sees tougher times ahead for the industry in general. 
over the history of our industry, we've had the benefit of tailwinds. There's been a huge credit super cycle, you know, a, G- a globalization cycle. You know, we've had greater productivity over the last 40 years than ever any other period in business history. So, you know, will this next, you know, 10 years be the same? I, I suspect it will not be. But, you know, the truth is we've also paid up for a lot of that. And, and the valuations that went along with that super cycle you know, have gotten very high. And so for me, the things that, that I think we'll see is some dislocation in value. I think we'll see some dislocation in technology. I still think we'll thrive because, you know, in times of uncertainty where, you know, where, the, where everybody's looking at the next year, if you're in the public market, but we're looking at the next five, you know, with our capabilities, I think we'll be doing quite well. So at the top of the industry, you have some real giants and they have certain economies of scale. They're becoming huge asset gatherers, bringing together more assets that that can earn them more management fees. And there's more of a focus now on the management fees than they used to be. They will do okay either way. And then at the other end of the industry, you know, sort of towards the bottom of the long tail, you have hundreds or thousands of, of you know, artisanal, if you like, private equity firms, which, you know, might have a single strategy, might just do a deal or two a year. And they can still stand out doing really sort of detailed analysis and research. You know, those in the middle, uh, as, as you often see in these environments, will be squeezed more. Okay, so you're saying it's not the end of the private markets party yet, but it does feel like a reality check for the idea that the party can go on forever. What does all this add up to it is a challenge, and it's it's even more daunting when you think that there's a new generation of managers who are at the at the helm of these companies, you know, who are relatively inexperienced. They face a huge test, and I think that's a reason why investors need to look with a bit more scepticism at some of these firms and their strategies and, and private markets in general, because they've pinned so much hope on them. And many of them will deliver, some of them won't. I think it's going to be a mixed picture. But I think investors are perhaps a little bit too trusting and they've, they've come to sort of see private markets as a sort of gravy train that they can just continue to profit from. And, you know, it may not be quite so easy going forward. Yes, I really don't envy those new bosses' to-do lists. <laughs> Me neither. Matthew, thank you so much for all of your time and insights. It's been a real pleasure. It's been fun. Thanks very much, Alice. Our thanks too to John Connerton of Bain Capital, Elisa Wood of KKR and Anne Glover at Amadeus Capital Partners. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. Matthew's special report is published in full in this week's edition of The Economist. Definitely go and read it. And if you want to get in touch, you can reach us directly at podcasts at economist.com or leave us a review wherever you listen. The producer is Amika Shortino-Nolan. Nico Ralfast is the sound engineer, and the editor is Sandra Schmueli. I'm Alice Fullwood, and in London, this is The Economist. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolinbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.